listening to the Evolution 101 Podcast. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening. My name is Zachary Moore, and you can email me directly at zach at drzach.net. You can also send feedback or submit questions for the podcast through the website at www.drzach.net, which also links to the archive page at freethoughtmedia.com and the ever-present Molecular Evidence for Evolution, examples of molecular homology. Just click on the, the green chalkboard that you see up in the corner if you want to see a few examples of how genes from different organisms can be lined up to show the gradual genetic change over evolutionary time. And if those aren't convincing enough, just contact me with your gene of choice and I'll do a full phylogenetic analysis of the DNA just for you. I'd like to welcome any new listeners this week. The listenership here is growing steadily and I have to say I'm very happy that so many have such interest in evolutionary theory. I'm certainly glad to have you all on board and I welcome any questions you may have. Remember, your questions are what drive this podcast. Speaking of which, here's the listener email for this week from Cameron, who asks, We know that monkey babies are soon thrown on the mother's back after birth and have to hang on and, and have that ability in them at birth. If a monkey was slowly evolving to human and evolution was taking place, the offspring would not likely survive considering survival of the fittest and all. While the human eventually would become superior intellectually, they at birth are quite helpless. If it was a survival of the fittest situation, the more human a monkey became, the less likely they would be to survive. If I was forming a theory to find the common cause, I would say that monkeys would be more likely to have evolved from humans based on what is known on the care of babies. The humans would care for the child the same and eventually they would evolve to the point that they did not need all the care. Can you follow the logic on this? But of course we have to deal with a fossil record and that seems to say a different story. What do you think? Well, Cameron, I think I follow what you're saying. You're saying that although you accept the evolution of the species, you're having trouble accepting that natural selection can account for it all. Well, you're right. It's, it's not as simple as, quote, survival of the fittest. Ultimately, of course, what it comes down to is which members of a population are able to reproduce the most efficiently. But that doesn't always mean that the strongest or fastest is the one that fits the bill. Sexual selection, for example, is a component of natural selection that very often runs counter to what we would anticipate in terms of the selection of certain traits. Take the peacock, for example. The male of that species sports a tail that is non-functional, though attractive, and it costs him much in terms of energy to produce. Yet we also observe that females are most attracted to males which have the largest and most impressive tails, hence the selection. I should actually probably do a podcast on this subject soon. Also, remember that the selection component of natural selection is a composite of all the environmental factors that affect any group of organisms, or lack thereof. For example, you mentioned the fact that monkeys cling to their mothers, and yet humans do not. Well, what we also know is that humans differ in a number of significant ways from monkeys, including the amount of body hair. There are a number of hypotheses to explain why humans lost body hair, 
neoteny is one, which actually I feel is pretty strong. But consider that without body hair, it was impossible for babies to grab onto their mothers. Thus, natural selection kicks in. Any mother which treated her child like a monkey would have lost it and would not have passed on any genes. Only those mothers who slowed down to carry their babies were successful in raising them to adulthood, and thus the genes which encouraged this behavior were passed on. Or it could have been the other way around. Mothers stopped carrying babies on their bodies, and thus there was no selective pressure to keep full body hair. Whatever the reason, the molecular evidence clearly shows that humans and primates are descended from a common ancestor. Common heredity is the only phenomenon that has been observed which can explain two different organisms having the same genetic information. All right, on to this week's topic. The intended audience of this podcast is, as I've made clear many times before, those with no formal scientific training, lay people, if you will. One of the confusing things about being a layperson in regards to some esoteric topic is that there are always experts on both sides of the issue that are trotted out to voice the opinions of both sides, and it's very hard to decide which experts are the most believable. Believe me, this is true for me in a lot of subjects. I may know my way around evolution pretty well, but there are a lot of things in science of which I find myself at a complete loss. For those people that are inexperienced with the evidence for evolutionary theory, the arguments from those promoting the position of creationism can be just as confusing, especially when the creationist scientists are trotted out to make their arguments against evolution. So, who do you listen to? Well, Ken Miller advocates for evolutionary theory, and Michael Behe advocates for intelligent design, or creationism, basically. Both men have PhDs, both men are college professors, both men have published primary scientific literature, and both men have written popular books on the topic. Both men were even called to testify at the Kitzmiller vs. Dover trial. So, who's right? And more importantly, what can we look at to see? Well, I've already done a podcast on Behe's argument for irreducible complexity. Essentially, he argues that certain biological systems are so complex that they could not have evolved from simpler systems, and thus he posits the existence of an intelligent designer to explain their existence. I've already explained why, logically, this is fallacious, because it's an appeal to ignorance. And regardless, evolutionary theory aptly provides an explanation for the evolution of the few examples he gives. So, logically... Behe's argument falls pretty flat. But what about scientifically? If, as Behe hypothesizes, biological systems are, in fact, irreducibly complex, well, then we should be able to see overwhelming evidence from scientific investigation. This is where the rubber meets the road, basically. Anyone can have an idea, but without rigorous scientific investigation peer-reviewed and published, that idea is just an idea and cannot be treated with any scientific respect. So, sure, Michael Behe has the same academic credentials as Ken Miller, 
But has he been able to put his grant money where his mouth is? In other words, what scientific papers have been published that support irreducible complexity, or, for that matter, intelligent design or creationism in general? Well, let's just take a brief sample. On PubMed, one of the most popular biomedical search engines, a search for evolution turns up 178,160 papers. And that's just since 1916. A search for creationism, on the other hand, yields only 48 articles total. Most of these are editorial articles by scientists expressing their concern over the creation versus evolution debate that goes on in popular culture. There is, in fact, one interesting scientific paper that comes up published in the journal Laterality, which concludes that people with a strong preference for one hand versus the other are actually more likely to believe in creationism, whereas people who are ambidextrous, or those who can use both their right or left hand, are more likely to accept evolutionary theory. A search for intelligent design brings up the same small numbers as creationism. But aside from that, there is no published data that can be easily found, no primary data that leads to the conclusion creationism is the accepted hypothesis. Fortunately, the Discovery Institute, the most scientifically rigorous creationist organization of which I'm aware, has helped to resolve this issue by publishing a list of peer-reviewed literature supporting intelligent design. I should, before I proceed further, explain what peer review means. Essentially, this means that once a paper has been written containing new hypotheses, data, and conclusions, it has to be given to one or more peers, in other words, other scientists who are also publishing data, preferably in a field close to the one that the paper in question deals with. After this, the paper is either approved or rejected for publication. According to the Discovery Institute, the reason for highlighting a peer-reviewed list of articles is due to the fact that, quote, critics of intelligent design often claim that design advocates don't publish their work in appropriate scientific literature. For example, Barbara Forrest, a philosophy professor at Southeastern Louisiana University, was quoted in USA Today that design theorists aren't published because they don't have scientific data. End quote. Well, okay. So the Discovery Institute has data to show us. Let's see the data. Well, in their published list, they begin by showing seven featured articles. However, all of them are reviews or position papers. None of them contain any basic research, and I'm frankly unsure why they would want to feature them. Most of them are published in proceedings of journals, which have a slightly different peer review process than other journals, basically. As, as long as you can get a member of that particular society to sponsor your paper, it'll be published. The one contribution by Jonathan Wells would seem to be interesting in that it proposes an experiment but doesn't actually carry it out. I can't find any follow-up papers, and it appears that it was just an abstract that was presented at a conference. They likely realize that seven articles, none of which present any basic research, seems kind of weak, so they fill out the rest of the list categorically, starting with four peer-reviewed books. I'm not completely sure how these university presses work, but I very much doubt it's anything similar to the review process for scientific articles. 
There's also three books that are supportive of intelligent design, although they're not peer-reviewed. And finally, we're down to the real meat. Articles published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Now here we're only down to six, two of which were featured above. The first is in the journal Chaos, Solitons, and Fractals. The second is in another proceedings journal, and actually caused quite a stink from that society towards the editor who allowed its publication. The third is actually by Behe, and is from a respectable journal, Protein Science, although it received a lengthy rebuttal in that same journal, which basically showed that they had made several mistakes in assumptions for their calculations. Behe had tried to use mathematical modeling to show that mutations couldn't accrue fast enough to result in protein modification. The fourth is a review that questions the relevance of transposons to evolution, but it's not really supportive of intelligent design. The fifth is published in the International Journal of Fuzzy Systems. Not sure what that is. And the last is in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, postulating that the limited and predictive arrangement of protein folds represents a manifestation of, quote, natural law, as opposed to natural selection. This is not contrary to evolutionary theory, however, since evolution does not predict that chemical interactions between amino acids change over time, just the arrangements of amino acids in a peptide chain in response to varying levels of environmental selection. Following these is a list of seven articles published in peer-reviewed anthology books, five of which were published by members of the Discovery Institute. And then they have another seven peer-edited articles, I'm not sure what that means, four of which were also written by Discovery Institute members. And they rounded off with five philosophical papers, which of course, includes the guarantee of no basic research, one by Behe, and the rest by the Christian apologist William Lane Craig. So that's it. The most the Discovery Institute can muster is 26 articles, none with a single conducted experiment, and four books. As a point of contrast, remember, there are 178,160 articles 25,672 of which are reviews on PubMed, which include evolution. And that only goes back to 1916, remember. I want to repeat, not a single experiment has been published to test a hypothesis advanced by creationism or intelligent design. Not a single one. So, sure, there are definitely scientists with real degrees out there talking about intelligent design, but they can't perform a single experiment to back up their arguments. Remember that the next time you find yourself torn between two experts in the creationism evolution debate. Firstly, there is no scientific debate on the subject. We can see that, obviously, in the constant and overwhelming asymmetry of papers published in support of evolution versus those published in support of creationism. When less than 0.01% of the papers published on a topic are in support of an alternative explanation, you can pretty much guarantee that there's no debate. And secondly, there's just no evidence to support any other hypothesis but evolution, not a single experiment. Which makes complete sense, of course. I mean, how can you hope to conduct an experiment 
to test a phenomenon which is ultimately supernatural. Those who would deny the fact of evolution know this, which is why the only arguments they can hope to get away with are those that attempt to discredit evolutionary theory. Remember, if an expert has no direct evidence in support of his own position, but can only attempt to tear down the position of his opponents, well, you can reasonably conclude that he doesn't have anything meaningful to offer. So, in conclusion, evolutionary theory is the only explanation for the data that is available to us, and no alternative hypothesis, whether it be creationism, intelligent design, or anything else, even has the power to propose a single experiment which could support it. I think it should be pretty clear now that for those inexperienced with evolutionary theory, choosing the experts to listen to should be a no-brainer. Thanks for listening. Take care.